3: President Biden just gave what is only the second oval address of his presidency, positioning America as a bulwark against the dark forces that are amassing across the globe from Ukraine to Gaza.
4: Hamas and Putin represent different threats, but they share this in common. They both want to completely annihilate a neighboring democracy, completely annihilate it. American leadership is what holds the world together. American alliances are what keep us, America, safe. American values are what make us a partner that other nations want to work with. To put all that at risk, if we walk away from Ukraine, we turn our backs on Israel, it's just not worth it.
3: Biden's message comes as the world is essentially holding its collective breath, waiting for what comes next in the Middle East. Do you see all of the little dots in these satellite images? Those are hundreds of tanks and armored vehicles that Israel has deployed ahead of a potential ground invasion. That massive military buildup is, is sitting, is, is waiting just about four miles north of the main entry point at Gaza's northern border, the Erez Crossing. The Israeli military has been putting out videos like this one for days now, videos showing their tanks and troops training and preparing near Gaza's northern border. Today, Israel's defense minister, Yoav Gallant, traveled in person to tell Israeli troops near the border to get organized and to be ready. Whoever sees Gaza from afar now will see it from the inside, he said. I promise you. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu was also near the border with troops today, and he told them, we are going to win with all our might and asked the soldiers, are you ready? So the prospect of a ground invasion, which would be a major escalation and is expected to result in a dramatic increase in casualties on both sides of this war, that is very much a live issue at this hour. And while those Israeli ground forces are amassed at Gaza's northern border, potentially entering through the Erez crossing at any moment, we are awaiting a very different entry from Gaza's southern border. According to the aid group, the Red Crescent, more than 200 trucks with around 3,000 tons of aid are lined up at or near the Rafah crossing, waiting to be let in through, let through to deliver critical humanitarian supplies to civilians in Gaza. After repairs to that border crossing are completed, international observers will begin to inspect the trucks, making sure no weapons or supplies for Hamas are uh, are smuggled in. They will start by trying to get 20 trucks through the crossing tomorrow as a sort of test of the system. If that works, the hope is to start sending 100 trucks through that crossing every day. Trucks that would be filled with humanitarian supplies. That is the amount of aid Gaza received before the war began. So there is a potential ground invasion just across the northern border and desperately needed humanitarian aid just across the southern border, both potentially entering Gaza imminently. Meanwhile, the death toll of this war continues to rise. The IDF reports that 1,400 have been killed in Israel and the Hamas-run Gazan Health Ministry. It reports that more than 3,700 have been killed in Gaza. This conflict is at a tipping point, and it could swing in a lot of different directions right now. Today, Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu warned that this could be a long war. And as President Biden himself made clear tonight, it is not the only long war demanding American support. Just this week, we passed the 600-day mark for the war in Ukraine. In his speech tonight, President Biden stressed the importance of American support for both of these wars and why they both matter right here
4: at home. Why does this matter to America? So let me share with you why making sure Israel and Ukraine succeed is vital for America's national security. You know, history has taught us that when terrorists don't pay a price for their terror, when dictators don't pay a price for their aggression, they cause more chaos and death and more destruction. They keep going.
3: Joining me now is Virginia Senator Tim Kaine, member of the Senate Foreign Relations and Armed Services Committee. Senator, thanks for being here tonight. And I'm genuinely genuinely interested to know... How do you think the American public looks at these two battles, the one in Ukraine and the war in Israel, do, do you think, I mean, President Biden tried to sort of contextualize them in the same lens, this broader fight against the forces of, of darkness, terrorism, fascism, what have you. Do you think the American public sees them in, through the same lens?
2: You know, Alex, I, I live in Virginia, which is a state that is just, if there's a more pro U.S. military in terms of our history and veterans and active duty population and military families. You know, I don't know of one. We are a patriotic pro-U.S. state. And I think the way people look at it here is it's a time in the world where it's sort of democracies versus destroyers. Uh, What the president said this evening is you've got dictators who want to destroy a neighboring democracy. You have terrorist groups that want to destroy a neighboring democracy. And democracies aren't perfect. We aren't here in the United States. Israel isn't. Ukraine isn't. But um, democracies are vastly preferable to the those who want to destroy human rights, international law. And that's what's at stake right now. And that's why I think it was very important for the president to address the nation and talk about the linkage between what we are doing to support Ukrainians and what we are doing to support Israelis in their defense against this Hamas terrorist attack.
3: He was making a a fairly eloquent, sort of laying out an eloquent thesis about the existential nature of the battle at this hour. But there's also the sort of political reality of what the White House is seeking, which is increased funding for Ukraine and Israel. And I wonder, given the shambles that is the the lower chamber, the House of Representatives, whether you think his argument will help, once there is a speaker elected, move Republicans who may be somewhat recalcitrant on on funding for Ukraine, seeing as the president would like to sort of bundle it in the argument he's making for Israel.
2: Yeah, Alex, I think you uh, put your finger on a good point. We don't feel like there's, you know huge challenges in terms of providing support for Israel in their battle against Hamas. We have to make sure that they do it in a way that it minimizes civilian casualties, that supports humanitarian aid to Gazans, because Gaza is not Hamas. Palestinians are not Hamas. Uh, Palestinians and Gazans are under the thumb of Hamas. But how do you do this, and how do you convince Congress to do it? Um, My sense is this. While the House is trying to figure out their leadership vacuum right now. The Senate has a bigger burden on its shoulders to act in a bipartisan way. When the president sends this package over, I think you're going to see us turn to it immediately. And my vote counting in the Senate tells me we have a big bipartisan majority to support aid to Ukraine, aid to Israel, the disaster relief aid that's commonly part of a fall supplemental package. And we will do that, and we will send it to the House with a big bipartisan margin. And as they're organizing, when we send it to them with that bipartisan margin, that's the way to maximize chance of success. So we'll go to work on this as soon as we're back next week, and the House will figure itself out. But I think the Senate can act in a bipartisan way to support these important priorities.
3: Senator, I got to ask you because the president keeps invoking the specter of 9/11 when he talks about um, overreach, mistakes being made. There's also the reality that yeah. there was no necessary endpoint, no uh, no 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 foreseen way of ending those wars at their outset. Are, should Democrats, should the White House be concerned about how? the war between Israel and Hamas ends, given the fact that we are increasing funding. America is apparently all in on the side of Israel. Should there be concern or trepidation about what the end game actually is?
2: Um, Alex, absolutely. Uh, America's all in in the side of Israel against Hamas, but we have to draw the distinction uh, that Hamas is not the same as Gaza. It's not the same as Palestinians. And if there is a lesson from 9-11, it is when you are attacked and you have the world sympathy on your side, make sure that your response is calibrated against the perpetrator of the attack. When the U.S. went after Osama bin Laden or Al-Qaeda, we had the world on our side. But when we allowed the mission to creep more broadly to a global war on terror, when we declared war against an Iraq that had nothing to do with the 9-11 attack, we we lost support, we lost credibility, and we unleashed a string of consequences that were bad for the United States, bad for the region, bad for the world. And that's why President Biden went in person to talk to Prime Minister Netanyahu and others. You can provide support from afar, but if you want to look somebody in the eye and say, whatever your emotions right now, and the emotions are completely valid, uh, you do not weaken yourself by being strategic in your response. That's why President Biden went to Israel, because he wanted to deliver that message in person. And I think we need to work with our ally Israel to make sure that they take steps in the coming days that make sure that the response is against the perpetrator, but not against the So many millions in Gaza who are suffering under the thumb of Hamas.
3: It is a very, very complicated high wire act right now. Senator Tim Kaine, such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for your time, sir. Really appreciate it.
2: Glad to be with you. You bet.
3: Joining me now is Ali Velshi, MSNBC's chief correspondent and, of course, host of Velshi. Ali, you know, we were just talking with Senator Tim Kaine about the sort of complexity here yeah. for the White House. I want to play a little bit of sound uh, when President Biden was doing just what the senator was talking about, sort of trying to urge Israel in the most public fashion to abide by the the, the laws of war. Let's take a listen to that. If we have it. Maybe we don't. Here's what he said.
4: At the same time, President Netanyahu and I discussed again yesterday, the critical need for Israel to operate by the laws of war. That means protecting civilians in combat as best as they can.
3: Is this, what do you make of this?
0: Well, so a lot of people just, you know, who aren't involved in wars think what there are laws to, to war, but there are five basic principles in the laws of war. And that is your response needs to be proportional that you don't as much as possible, involve non-combatants, um, and and that you sort of you know do the thing as honorably and with as little damage as possible. I think what what President Biden did when he first spoke after the massacre is he he pledged unconditional support for yep. Israel, which I think calmed a lot of feathers in Israel. Now, as this goes forward, and as we have not seen a ground invasion, which is going to be catastrophic on several levels, including, as Israelis say, for their own soldiers, because urban warfare is just a terrible thing. This is where President Biden is basically saying tonight, I've given you the assurances. I'm asking Congress for the money. We told you we're going to have your back on this and the weaponry and the ammunition we need to proceed in a way that minimizes civilian casualties as as the senator says the, the folks living there do not have agency they do not they are not picking their leaders they're not elections they're not opposition parties and while it's it's interesting to say that hamas is not gaza and gaza uh, is not hamas hamas is more intertwined into the lives of gazans than you can imagine they are all the hospitals they are all the civil services all of that stuff so this is very complicated. The whole region is complicated. Israel, Palestine is complicated. Gaza is complicated. But the Hamas relationship to the two point two million civilians mm-hmm. of Gaza is inextricable. That's not that doesn't mean they support them. It means you. they can't live without them. So if you're going to take out or think you're going to take out Hamas, then there had better be some sort of plan as to what comes next.
3: And that's, you know, something that we addressed as well with the senator, which is what is the logical endpoint of this war? Uh, I mean, I, I will say what he was saying about Biden's trip to Israel in the context of trying to caution Israel, it sort of reframes that, right? It wasn't just about showing solidarity with Israel. It was possibly also to say to Prime Minister Netanyahu, behind closed doors— do not violate the rules, the laws of war. Do yes. not overstep this. Do not do what we did in 9-11.
0: And, and the other thing we did after 9-11 is if somebody had told us 20 years from now, this is how it's going to look. The bad guys are going to be in power. You won't have rooted out the evil you thought and a whole bunch of people will be dead. And it'll cost you several trillion dollars. We might have done something else. So that's it's the you can't look around a corner. So do your best to do that. I think President Biden was saying two things. One of one is minimize the, the, the damage and the risks and the civilian deaths. And two is just think five times about this because you could get yourself into a situation like we did in Afghanistan, where in the end, your only choice was to leave. That's complicated. And a lot of Israelis who are really hurting also understand that yeah. That if you're not if you don't have a way of rooting, you know, taking this out by its root. Make sure there's a plan to get out because they don't want to end up with uh, a whole bunch of Gazans in what is essentially a refugee camp that they have to.
3: Well, And that's of. a measurable difference between America yeah. involving itself in wars in the East yeah. and Israel, yes. w- which is centered in the Middle yes. East. I have to ask you about uh, the president's framing of Israel in the same context as Ukraine in the sort of broader existential battle uh, for and against democracy. You have reported from both of these yeah. regions, and I wonder I'll ask you the same question I asked the senator. Do you think the American public understands these to be the same sort of battles in the same context? I-,
0: I had a little trouble understanding it. I understand the president doesn't give a lot of Oval Office addresses. So and he had two jobs to do because you have a a, a, a Congress that isn't getting its business done and he needs funding for both things. Uh, and Republicans are a little troublesome on the funding of Ukraine front. So he needed to do a couple of jobs and he needed to explain that the U.S. has resources committed to do different battles. It's they're just they're a little bit of apples and oranges, and and I think that's it gets confusing uh, when he did that. I I understand what the intent was. He's saying we're doing two two different things, and we need congressional and American support for it. They're just different. Their 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 histories are different. Their causes are different. The underlying effects are different. So I did find that a little confusing, but I I I got the point he was trying to make. The problem is in complicated layered things like this, combining things sometimes doesn't get the point
3: across. I think it was, I mean, as much, I think, a genuine belief yeah. in his thesis, yes. but yeah. also trying to tackle the matter at hand, which is like, it's we need lot. to get Ukraine funding. We need to We get do this all funding.
0: the time on TV, right? We try and put two things into into one <laughs> are you to, talking uh, about? deal with timing. Never. To, yeah. So
3: <laughs> always I get
0: the intent, but it was it was it was,
3: a, it was a tough. One. Well, listen, a lot is going to we're going to dissect that yeah. that, that rem- the set of remarks uh, over the course of the next 24 hours. And I thank you, my friend, for being with me thank for you, rapid so response. Ali Velshi, host of Velshi, airing weekdays, weekends, at 10 a.m. on MSNBC. Thank you again for your time, my friend. We have lots more ahead this evening. Former Trump attorney Sidney Powell, the person who famously vowed to release the Kraken in order to hand the 2020 election to Trump, that person is now pleading guilty in the Georgia election conspiracy case. So what does that mean for her fellow defendant, Donald Trump? But first, who can captain the House Republican Conference? Right now, it looks like no one South Carolina Congressman Jim Clyburn will be here to help me understand exactly what is happening in the house. That is next.
5: Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style, and you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first... Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.
3: The first time Republicans were struggling to elect a Speaker of the House this year, they almost came to blows.
0: Look at somebody's yeah. holding somebody back. Look at that. Oh, somebody just held somebody back. Stephanie, just look at that. It looks like a fight breaking out on the floor.
3: Republican Congressman Mike Rogers had to be physically restrained from lunging at Congressman Matt Gates on the House floor. And if you remember, that was January 6th of this year, the two-year anniversary of the violent attack that took place in that very chamber. And today, House Republicans appear to have not learned much. In the intervening months. Today, Republicans held a closed-door meeting to decide how to move forward after two failed votes to elect a new speaker. And during that meeting, Congressman Matt Gates reportedly stood up to speak, at which point Illinois Republican Mike Bost almost lunged at him. So once again, we've reached the lunging at Matt Gates part of the speaker cycle, which I did not know was an actual thing until now. Going into that meeting, there had been a lot of speculation that Republicans might coalesce around a plan to empower Congressman Patrick McHenry as a temporary speaker. But coming out of that meeting today, multiple Republicans announced that that plan is now dead. Congressman Jim Jordan, for his part, is still attempting to win the gavel, despite his historic loss earlier this week. Late today, he met with the 22 Republican holdouts who opposed his candidacy, some of whom say they have received death threats over their opposition. Tonight, Punchbowl News is reporting that every single Republican in that meeting told Jim Jordan that they will not back his bid for Speaker. All of which poses a major problem for both Jim Jordan and the House Republican Conference. There is apparently no viable Republican candidate for Speaker of the House. Nonetheless, Jim Jordan's office announced that a third speaker vote is scheduled for tomorrow at 10 a.m. Joining me now to help me figure out what is happening here is South Carolina Democrat Congressman Jim Clyburn. He is the assistant Democratic leader in the House. Um, Congressman Clyburn, thank you for joining me tonight. I, I from I, I, there there seems to be so much confusion in the House Republican conference. I'm wondering whether you can tell us your understanding of the situation as it stands right now. Do you believe that Republicans have completely closed the door on the idea of Patrick McHenry being made a more medium-term speaker?
6: Well, thank you very much for having me. It seems that way. And that's very, very uh, regretful. I do believe that the American people are looking to us for civility, for cooperation, and quite frankly, for compromise. Nobody gets their way all of the time. And we should, as leaders in this great country, demonstrate to the American people that we understand what it is to find common ground and what is required. Now, they are holding on, my Republican friends, to a rule set, we call it the Hastert rule, that you gotta have all Republicans on board and not need any Democrats. Well, that's not the country. This country is pretty evenly divided uh, politically, and we ought to complement our work here by reflecting what the country stands for. And so to have uh, a bipartisan path forward would be in keeping uh, with the makeup uh, of the American people at this particular juncture. And I don't know why they're resisting that.
3: I I have my my theories about why they don't want to be bipartisan. But I guess I I mean, I wonder what happens now. Patrick McHenry has said, if you guys want me to do the business of the House without formally investing me with the powers to do that business, which is to say, without a vote, I'm not going to do it. I'm quitting. I'm out of here. There is no plan A here, Congressman. There is no plan B. And there is certainly no plan C. What do you think happens next as far as the House ever functioning again?
6: Well, from what I've been hearing tonight, it seems as if we're going to meet tomorrow at 10 o'clock and there's going to be a vote. Now, I'm told uh, that uh, the vote will be for our speaker, uh, that uh, Jordan We'll put his name forward again. Well, I'm also told that he's been in the meeting uh, with the 20 or 22 uh, people who voted uh, against him, and they all said they're not going to vote for him. So why would we put the American people through that? Why don't we just do something of a temporary basis on an interim basis, and that's what we need to do: Give Patrick McHenry the authority he needs. Uh, for the next uh, few months until maybe the end of the year so that he can get us to doing what we need to do. The president just gave an incredible speech to the American people showing why he sits in that office and demonstrating uh, the results uh, of the uh, meetings he had uh, while in the war zone. And we've got a president going to the war zone who is now sending to us a request for us to do what we need to do to maintain our relationships with our allies uh, across the world and also to do what is necessary uh, to assist uh, Israel. And we don't have the wherewithal to get it done. That doesn't make sense. Let's put the people of America above our partisan politics and get this done. And let's revisit politics uh, at a later time.
3: Given what you just said, I would love your reaction to Kevin McCarthy, who today is blaming Democrats for this dysfunction, saying every single Democrat chose to create this chaos. Your response to that? Well,
6: you know, I don't know what Kevin is talking about. You may recall the morning after the Democrats gave him more votes that his own Republicans gave him for his bill to keep the government open. That was not our bill. That was his bill. And we gave him more votes for his bill than he got from his own conference. And then he goes on television the next morning, blaming Democrats for wanting to shut the government down. For some strange reason, he seemed to be living in another world. Uh, Nobody watching the leader of the Democrats, Hakeem Jeffries, reaching out two days ago, saying that we will be, uh, are willing to be a part of a temporary solution, bring Patrick McHenry forward, uh, and he uh, demonstrated uh, in all of he, that he had to say that we Democrats are willing to go with a temporary solution to give them time to get their stuff together. It seemed to me that he ought to be grateful for that, but they seem to be uh, ungrateful.
3: Yeah, ungrateful, probably being a bit euphemistic, kind of generous using that adjective. Congressman Jim Clyburn, good luck to you, sir. Good luck to us all. Thank you for your time tonight.
6: Thank you very much. We're going to
3: need it. (laughs) You sure will. Coming up, if you thought House Republicans were crazy. Recall Donald Trump's former lawyer and conspiracy whisperer, Sidney Powell. Today, she pled guilty on the eve of her Georgia trial and agreed to testify against all of her fellow defendants, including Donald Trump. What it could mean for the 45th president. That's next.
5: The Living Room is where you make life's most beautiful memories When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first, connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.
3: Like I said, we were all kind of laughing. was—he was, was, The phone was on speaker, but she was, we were muted, so she couldn't hear us. And, um, you know, he said, like, this does sound crazy, doesn't it? Um, and I think I said, yes, yes, it does. That was former White House aide Hope Hicks testifying to the House January 6th committee, recalling when President Trump concluded that a certain woman's claims about the 2020 election sounded crazy. Tucker Carlson, before he got fired from Fox News, called the same woman an unguided missile, dangerous as hell, and a crazy person. And those are just the words I can repeat on television. Mr. Trump and Mr. Carlson were both talking about Sidney Powell, the former election lawyer who is at the center of Trump's efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election. And despite believing her to be crazy and dangerous as hell and an unguided missile, Fox News, and more importantly, President Trump, ran with her ideas. Less than two weeks after Trump lost the election to Joe Biden, Powell joined Rudy Giuliani and others to claim, without evidence, that the socialist government of Venezuela and Hugo Chavez, who had been dead for almost a decade at that point, that they interfered in the 2020 election. China, according to Powell, was also part of that plot.
4: What we are really dealing with here and uncovering more by the day is the massive influence of communist money through Venezuela, Cuba, and likely China in the interference with our elections here in the United States.
3: Three years later, it still boggles the mind. But even after Powell went public with that wackadoodle theory, Trump considered making Sidney Powell a special counsel to investigate election fraud. That happened during an infamous White House meeting in December of 2020, a meeting that Sidney Powell, Rudy Giuliani, and others, colloquially known as Team Crazy, that they tried to have in secret with President Trump. In that meeting, Powell and others raised the prospect of seizing voting machines from key counties and deploying the National Guard to potentially rerun the 2020 election. White House lawyers and staffers, colloquially known as Team Normal, They had no idea that meeting was taking place, but the second they learned about it, they ran as fast as they could to put a stop to it. Powell herself later testified to the January 6th committee, while sipping on a diet, Dr. Pepper, it should be noted, that during that meeting, she also told Trump about findings pointing to security flaws in Dominion voting machines. She said the president was very interested in the information that apparently nobody else had bothered to inform him of. And because of these statements and many other things Sidney Powell has said, she is being sued, not by one, but by two companies that provided election software to the U.S. during the 2020 election, Dominion and Smartmatic. Ms. Powell has now admitted that many of her claims were false. And today she pleaded guilty. To six misdemeanor charges of election interference in Georgia related to her quest to try to help Trump stay in power, specifically her role in breaching voting machine equipment in Coffee County, Georgia. Can you please state your true and correct legal name? Sydney Catherine Powell. How do you plead to the six counts of conspiracy to commit intentional interference with performance of election duties? Guilty. As part of the deal she reached with Georgia prosecutors, Powell will receive six years probation and must pay a six thousand dollar fine. Most importantly, though, her plea deal requires her to testify truthfully at the trials of any of the other Georgia co-defendants, including Donald Trump. So now that Sidney Powell is talking in Georgia, what does that mean for Donald Trump or for his co-defendants on Team Crazy, Rudy Giuliani and John Eastman? And more, more to the point, what does it mean for Jack Smith? the special counsel who is overseeing the federal election subversion case against Donald Trump. Neil Katyal and Anna Bowers will join me next to talk about the implications of this potentially seismic development. Stay with us. Do you understand that the state is asking that you truthfully testify at all hearings and proceedings and trials involving the co-defendants in this matter and that you have no communication with co-defendants, media or witnesses until this case has been completely closed against all defendants? I do. That was Donald Trump's former lawyer, Sidney Powell, in court today pleading guilty to six misdemeanor counts just days before what was supposed to be the start of her criminal trial for election interference in Fulton County, Georgia. As you just heard, one of the conditions of this plea is that she truthfully testify at all hearings, proceedings and trials against the 17 other co-defendants in this case. That, of course, includes Donald Trump. Joining me now are Anna Bauer, Legal Fellow and Courts Correspondent for Lawfare, and Neil Katyal, former Acting Solicitor General. Thank you both for being here. Anna, let me just ask you first, given this sort of timeline here, Powell's trial was supposed to begin effectively Friday or Monday. What do you think happened here to precipitate this plea deal?
7: Right, so we are on the eve of trial. Ken Chesbro's trial, of course, is still set to start tomorrow, as 450 jurors are set to come into Fulton County to fill out their jury questionnaires. And it's not unusual for defendants to, you know, settle or or, or strike a plea deal on the eve of trial. So, in some sense, this isn't all that surprising. We saw earlier in the week that after weeks of Sydney Powell arguing that she, you know, didn't have anything to do with the allegations related to the breach of voting systems in Coffee County, or that it was authorized if she did. Judge McAfee handed down a series of orders in which he uh, struck down some of her arguments that she'd made to dismiss those charges based on, on those types of arguments. So, I think that it— it seems like this was something that happened very quickly. It happened after Judge McAfee kind of uh, handed down those legal defeats. Uh, so, I think that it, it it made sense. It was a cost-benefit analysis for Sidney Powell. These are some of the, uh, you know, most serious charges that any of these defendants were facing because it involves computer trespass. So, when she was looking at seven fel- felonies and possible, you know, prison time, uh, I think that she just made a calculation that this is what she should have done.
3: Yeah. Trump v. Jail. The choice isn't maybe that hard. Neil, Trump's attorney seems confident that Powell's testimony, quote, will be favorable to my overall defense strategy. If if Trump is on record saying Sidney Powell sounded crazy, does that in any way diminish her utility as a witness?
8: Uh, No, I think she's going to be a devastating witness. So, first of all, I think this is probably the legally smartest decision that Sydney Powell has ever made in her entire career. And I can't say I think much of Sydney Powell's legal acumen, but for once, I got to commend her for making the right legal choice because it was a no brainer for her. If the case had gone to trial, I think it would have gone about as well as her challenges to the 2020 election. Um, in in a way, I do think I disagree a little bit with Anna. I do think this is still surprising because no brainers are exactly what Sydney Powell kind of would reject. She wasn't really part of the reality based community uh, for many years, but now has joined it. Um, and you know, to me, Alex, the most significant thing it's not the sick it's not the plea plea. It's to six misdemeanors. What Sydney Powell did was unforgivable. It's not a misdemeanor. There's only one reason I think that the prosecutors would give give her such a light plea deal, and it's because she's got significant testimony. And if I'm Trump or Trump's lawyer right now, the thing I'm most worried about, it's not just that she agreed to testify truthfully and all that in future proceedings. It's that last night she recorded a videotape of testimony that was turned over to the prosecutors, and part of this plea agreement requires her not to talk about it, with anyone other defendants the media you me whomever so that tape is you know i think of significant interest and trump can say all he wants about her diminished credibility but remember as you just said in your earlier clip alex trump tried to make her special counsel over the entire thing so good luck with that one mr trump
3: uh Anna, when we talk about Ken Chesbro, his trial is, as of right now, full steam ahead. Do you get any sense that there is some um, buyer's remorse on asking for this speedy trial? If you're Ken Chesbro, given he's the, the the cheese stands alone, as it were.
7: I, I, am not quite sure yet, Alex. I, uh, reached out earlier today to Chesbro's attorneys. Uh, they were not yet prepared to comment. Um, I will say that this was something that I think took everyone off guard, including, uh, you know, multiple defense attorneys. Uh, so I think that they were taking some time to process this news. Uh, but you know, Ken Chesbro has a very different case th- than Sidney Powell did. Um, he had previously asked to be severed from Sidney Powell. He wanted to stand alone. And indeed, the cheese is now standing alone. And, and I think that there's, you know, potential upside for him there because uh, some of the more uh, 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 serious allegations about Coffee County uh, will maybe have less of a spotlight in this upcoming trial. So maybe he can try to uh, minimize, you know, the seriousness of that uh, it, now that he's no longer standing next to Sidney Powell. Uh, but, you know, I I all is quiet in terms of that legal team uh, mm. at the moment. And we're all kind of wondering, you know, uh, where they'll go from here. What is this? How does it affect? How does this affect Jack Smith's case?
3: Neil, she's one of the unnamed co-conspirators in that case.
8: Yeah, I suspect very much Sidney Powell tried to do a global deal with the local and federal prosecutors. You'd almost in every circumstance want to do that. And I suspect Jack Smith said No. And, you know, we're just reading the tea leaves here, but probably the reason is Smith required her to plead guilty to a felony. And that was something that Georgia prosecutors weren't uh, weren't insisting upon. Now, anything that she says in Georgia, including on that videotape or in in future uh, proceedings, Jack Smith can, of course, introduce. So there's a way in which Jack Smith gets to have his cake and eat it, too, um, should he decide to go after her, um, as I suspect that he will. So I think one thing to worry about is just kind of where Powell's testimony will go. But another thing, if you're Trump, that you're scared about is, is this now the start of a domino effect? I mean, we know in conspiracy cases, I wrote a whole Yellow Journal article about it, how once one person starts to plead and flip, others generally follow. And there are 17 others that may follow. And so, you know, Trump has to worry not just about Powell, but about everyone else.
3: 17 members of uh, team, well, not necessarily team crazy, but 17 people who may be willing to join the reality-based community. Anna Power, Neil Katyal, thank you for joining me tonight. When we come back, new reporting in The Atlantic suggests Hamas's brutal attack in southern Israel did not play out the way the terror group may have intended. The author of that piece joins me next. Stay with us. According to new reporting in The Atlantic today, Hamas may not have had a plan for the extraordinary hostage situation it now finds itself in. Quote, a hostage-taking manual that was recovered in the aftermath of the Hamas attack suggests that the group's hostage-taking on October 7th did not go according to plan. The manual suggests that the group at first intended not to spirit all of them into Gaza, but instead to take them hostage where they were found inside Israel, possibly for a protracted standoff. We should note that MSNBC has not seen this document. The Atlantic reports it obtained a copy of the manual from an Israeli defense official. Joining me now is the author of that new reporting, Graham Wood, staff writer at The Atlantic. Graham, thank you for making the time. I found this fascinating. I wonder if you could elaborate on what exactly it appears Hamas may have been planning for vis-a-vis the hostages.
1: Yeah, this manual is an, a, a manual that, that is emblazoned with the logo of a subunit of Hamas's military arm. And it, it suggests that what Hamas was planning to do was, was to, on site, in the places where they attacked, in the communities where they attacked, have hostage sieges. They were supposed to concentrate the hostages in Israeli territory and expect to uh, sort of camp out. They'd have to have food, they'd have to have water, they'd have to have flashlights, batteries. And instead, that plan just was thrown in the trash because they had such great success in penetrating Israeli territory that they were able to take the hostages and bring them back to, to Gaza in much larger numbers than they were expecting.
3: It sounds like that planning, the food and water, etc., those are resources they intended on either seizing or bringing with them into Israel. So what are the implications for the hostages who are now presumably being held in Gaza if there was no advance planning to actually house hostages in that in in that area from the outset.
1: Yeah. So remember, there are 203 hostages at current count, and it appears that Hamas did not expect to have them. I mean, Israeli society is reeling at the number of people who have been brought to Gaza. And Hamas, too, must be considering it's, its luck so great that it really doesn't know what to do with it. I mean, Obviously, they're going to negotiate for, uh, for the lives of those hostages. They're going to use them as human shields. The manual even says in the plan that they had that they should use them as human shields. But they have this incredible bonanza of Israeli life that they can now deal with. Uh, it's just not in the terms that they were expecting to deal with it originally.
3: The manual also seems to suggest no prior knowledge that other uh, jihadist terror groups might enter the territory as well and take their own hostages. Is that right? That, that sort of seems like something that happened um, spontaneously.
1: Well, it's not just other jihadist groups. Ordinary Gazan civilians saw that there was this break in the, in the line, and many people came in, they looted things, uh, they took part in, in killing and torture. So that was not contemplated either. What we really get the sense of is that there was an unprecedented, unexpected success for this operation, where they thought they were going to go in, they were thought they were going to, to meet professional Israeli resistance, and in fact, they spent hours looting and killing with imputed impunity, and that was not something they planned for.
3: Really quick, Graham, I know that you've done extensive reporting about this part of the world and also terrorist networks. Because this is from uh, IDF, Israeli Defense Forces, I mean, how confident are you that this is effectively an authentic document?
1: Yeah, so this document was circulating uh, before the Israeli Defense Forces authenticated it for me. So I was able to find copies of it elsewhere. There were parts of it that the IDF preferred not to have released. Um, it there's it's of course impossible to tell whether it is authentic um, just independently um it's there's nothing that marks it as obviously false but the IDF says yes this was recovered from Hamas property that was recovered in Israeli territory after the raid of 7th of October so I'm pretty confident that it's it's accurate true uh, not a forgery
3: Well, it is explosive reporting and even more devastating, uh, a more devastating situation than we possibly could have fathomed for these hostages. Graham Wood, thank you so much for the essential reporting and for making the time tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you, Alex. That does
5: it for us tonight. The Living Room is where you make life's most beautiful memories.